Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In 2009, a book came out, and it was called The Trellis and the Vine. And the idea is that, if you know anything about viticulture, the trellis is that structure that's built, the open structure, uh, on which the vine is able to climb. And if not, the vine would just be on the ground. And I don't know much about viticulture, but but if apparently if you don't have the, the trellis, the vines won't do as well. And so you need the trellis to support the vine, but the main thing is the vine and the fruit thereof. And the point of this book was simply this. It's an excellent book, and I'd, I'd recommend it, but the point of it was very simple. That was this. In the church... In the church, we have vine work. And vine work is the main work of the church. It's making disciples of all the nations. It's investing in people. But at the same time, we need the trellis. We need the structure to hold up the vine work. And the bigger the vine work, the bigger the structure we need. Now, the point of the book is this that over the life of a church and over the life of the ministry, the trellis tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and more and more of the work is dedicated to the trellis and less and less to the vine, which is really the work of the church. Now, what we have in the, in the book of Acts up to this point is almost completely spontaneous vine work. Spontaneous vine work. There was a very little bit of structure. And there was a great deal of spontaneous sharing the gospel. As God pushed people out through persecution, and as God directed first Philip, go talk to the Ethiopian, and then Peter, go talk to the the centurion and his family. But up to this point, it has not been an organized activity. And that sort of spontaneous vine work produced thousands and thousands of believers in several cities. So what does the vine need if it's going to keep growing? Well, it starts to need a trellis. It starts to need some sort of a structure to continue the work of the vine. And that's what we have in this text. This is a turning point. Because in this text, we have the first pieces of a simple structure being built in order to extend the growth of the vine to other nations as well. And we start this text, and it says this in verse 1, Now there were 
in the church at Antioch. And we should stop there and say, wait a minute. How did that happen? It presents to us a church in Antioch. That's in Syria. And how did that happen? Well, we can go back and read how it happened. If you go back to chapter 11, verse 19, do you remember the persecution and the the death of Stephen? Well, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and Antioch. So they, they spread out and they went as far as Antioch. But look at this. It says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But then verse 20 of chapter 11. Of 11 but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus, the island off, uh, off, uh, out in the Mediterranean, about 60 miles off the coast uh, of Palestine. And Antioch, I'm sorry, and Cyrene. Cyrene is in, it was a city in what is now Libya, northern Africa. So there were some advanced thinkers from Cyprus and from Cyrene. And they, it says, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, who are the Hellenists? We met the Hellenists before. Hellenists are Greek speakers. Sometimes they're Jewish Greek speakers. That's what we found in the case of the widows. They were all Jews. Some spoke Greek. Some spoke Aramaic. The Hellenists were the Greek speakers. But here, the Hellenists are contrasted not only with another language, they're contrasted with the Jews. And so who are the Hellenists here? These are Greek-speaking non-Jews. Non-Jews. These are Gentiles. And it says... Verse 20, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas stayed there and he ministered there. And many people were coming to the Lord, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. And then he said, I need some help here. And he remembered someone whom he had helped earlier. If you look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So he says, I need help here. And he had helped Paul, or Saul, he's still called here. He had helped Saul previously. Because in Jerusalem, they didn't trust Saul. And understandably, and so Barnabas was the one who said, I'll vouch for him. And he took Saul to the apostles and he said, I'll vouch for him. I have seen what he's done. I've seen the work through him. But then Saul had to flee and he just went home. He went to his home country or his home city of Tarsus. And Barnabas said, I'm going to go look for him. He went to go look for him. Saul had apparently fallen off the map. They didn't know where he was except that he was in Tarsus. They went to find him and he brought him there. And the two of them worked together teaching. And it says, for the first time, they were called Christians. And it looks like a name that Christians did not give ourselves, although we bear it very happily. 
but it looks like the name that the people gave them. Who are these people? They're, they're, they're Jews and they're, they're Gentiles gathering together. And what are they about? Oh, I don't know. Something about someone they call Christ. And so the word got out that these people were about Christ. And so they started calling them Christians. Christians, a name that we, we bear with, with happiness to this day. So that's how the church in Antioch got started. It was, it was a result of spontaneous expansion, and then it, it grew because of dedicated teaching of the word by these two, Barnabas and Saul. But they weren't the only two. And if we look, read back in chapter 13, It says, now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, before we name the prophets and teachers, we need to talk a little bit about prophets and teachers. Now, we don't have a great deal of information. There's never a a definition given of, of what does a prophet do, what does a teacher do, and it's not clear if these men were all prophets and teachers, or if some were teachers, some were prophets. And what is the distinction between the two? Well... We have not a definition, but we have an example. If you go back to chapter 11, and you look at verse 26, which I just read, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church, and what did they do? Taught. Taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this was methodical, this was constant activity of teaching the disciples. And then in verse 27, it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of... Of Claudius, And then it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we don't have a definition of a prophet, but we see a prophet in action here. So the teachers were methodically, constantly explaining and applying the word of God. And then this prophet stood up and gave an urgent word about an occasional situation. So this was not going an ordinary ministry. This was an extraordinary ministry about some sort of an urgent um, situation that had arisen. And then the church responded by reacting to that in mercy. And so it could be that that's the distinction here between the focus of a teacher and the focus uh, and the work of a prophet. Now, let's go back to the list. It says here, prophets and teachers, Barnabas. Barnabas, by the way, was from Cyprus. He was a native of Cyprus. Keep that in mind. And by the way, um, remember, who evangelized Antioch? And who were the ones who took the initiative to evangelize the Gentiles? People from Cyprus and from where? Cyrene. Okay, keep that in mind. So we have Barnabas from Cyprus, Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, Niger is a a Latin loan word, and it means black. And so if we were going to translate this, we would have something like Simon, who was called the black guy. And that's how they identified him. That was his nickname. And that could mean maybe just that he had very dark skin, or it could mean that he was from sub-Saharan Africa. We've already met a, a black man from 
from uh, not what we would call the southern part of Africa, but as far south as they knew, uh, which would be in Sudan. So he may have been from uh, that part of Africa. And then we have Lucius, and we know he's from Africa because it says Lucius of Cyrene, and he may have been one of the ones that took the gospel to the, uh, the Antiochians in the beginning because he was one of those forward thinkers from Cyrene. And then we have Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, when you read the New Testament, it's easy to get confused about all these Herods. Well, this was Herod Antipas, and this is the one who killed John the Baptist, and this is the one who tried Jesus and mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. This is that same Herod, and so we have somebody who grew up with that Herod. So this is a very diverse group. And the last one is named Ansal. And he's thrown in at the end because he seems to be the most recently arrived of the group. But this is a very diverse group. It looks like it's diverse racially. It looks like it's diverse nationally. It it looks like it's diverse socioeconomically. Somebody who grew up in a royal court and then others, a, a, a former Jewish rabbi like Saul. And they were there ministering. And this is a powerful teaching team. Wouldn't you like to be in a church like that with with that caliber of, of teachers, five of them, and prophets? And it says here, while they were worshiping. This word worshiping is the word that's usually used, the, the Greek word that's usually used to describe temple service. While they were ministering to the Lord. That's what it says. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting and fasting. Now, it's interesting that in Acts, we don't find much fasting. We find it on just a a couple of occasions, several occasions, very few. And it, it, it doesn't seem to be something that's prominent. And yet, when we look at the words of Jesus, he simply assumed that it would be something that Christians do. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, And when you fast, he didn't say, and if you fast, he said, And when you fast, just assuming that that's what we would do, And then when they threw it in his face and said, why don't your disciples fast? The disciples of the Pharisees fast. The disciples of John the Baptist fast. Why don't your disciples fast? He said, the bridegroom's still here. But after the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. And so he indicated that there would be a time after his death when his disciples would fast. And they were fasting here. And during this worship service, during this time of of fasting, it says, the Holy Spirit said... Now, we find that in Acts a number of times. The Holy Spirit said, and we don't know how he said this, but we could presume, probably correctly, that he said it through one of these prophets. Because this is an an extraordinary message. It's an occasional message. It's an urgent message, not the regular teaching. So it may have come through one one of the prophets. And the word is this, from the Holy Spirit, set apart for me... Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Later, if you read Paul in Galatians and in Romans, he talks about the fact that he was set apart. And here the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Doesn't spell out what that is. And then after fasting and praying, so they fasted more, they prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them off. Um, actually, this this word they sent them off. This is this, this is actually more more closely to they released them, they they let them go, they relinquished them, 
And that is, is really, you can imagine, that's what it felt like, didn't it? They, they let go two of their best teachers. They let go two of their, their favorite preachers. They let go those whom they loved and, and, and from whom they had learned so much. They, they released them because the Holy Spirit had called them. Now, um, here we find, here this, this is the first planned, the first planned missionary activity in, in Acts. Up to this point, it's all been spontaneous, planned by God, made to happen by God, by, by persecution, by, by direct uh, sending of, of people. But here, the church is involved. This is the first, the first church mission activity that is an organized activity of the church. And I want you to notice something here. That the church had to release two of his most gifted and probably most loved members. And they also took financial responsibility for these two. Now, how do we know that? Because, as we read the following narrative, and they go to these various cities, they didn't work other jobs. Later, in some other cities, Saul or Paul worked other jobs to provide for himself, and other missionaries did the same thing, but here they didn't. How did they make it during that time? Well, the church provided for them, and then when they finished, they went back to the church. Now, here are some, some principles, some principles that, that really we should follow up to this day. One is not so much a principle, but an observation, and it's this. A diverse church, a diverse church is likely more open to reaching other people. And that's what happened here. I'm not going to make this into a principle, but it's really an observation. But a church that is open to people in its own neighborhood may well be more likely to being open to people on the other side of the world as well. If they are, if they are concerned to reach people different from them who live next door, then that demonstrates an openness to be able to reach people who are different from them across the seas. And that's what happened here. The second principle is this. We will need to sacrifice in order to reach others. We will need to sacrifice. We will need to give not what is left over. We will need to give that which is valuable and costly to us, either in financial resources or and or in personal resources. And we should be willing to give what costs us, not what we can easily spare. I have seen this. I've seen this. This is this is our story. After we were in seminary, we got married between my second and third year of seminary, had one year together in seminary, and then we took a call to a church in Maryland as an associate pastor. And it was a call like I have never seen from any other church. The call was this. We want you to come and be our associate pastor and serve us and minister to us and we will... We will receive you and welcome you and we will, we will love you and you will be part of our church. And then after very few years, we will send you out to the mission field and we will give you what you need to go. Now imagine, after three years in this church, and it was a young church, a growing church, after three years, we loved each other. They appreciated us. We appreciated them. We loved each other. And so 
it was difficult to take their associate pastor, and they had only two pastors, their pastor, their senior pastor, and the associate pastor. They took half the pastoral staff, and I'm pretty sure they were not trying to get rid of us. And they sent us out, and they gave us a third of the support we needed. Now, this was a church that didn't yet have its own building. This was a church that was meeting in an elementary school. This was a church that, with young people, and not, not for the most part, not wealthy people. A middle class church. And this church said, we will, we will get you started and we will take on a third of your support. You know what? That church to this day supports the work here, not financially, but they're constantly saying, send me a video greeting. Tell us what's happening in Florida Coast Church so that we can pray for you. And that's what they do. That is a missionary church. And that missionary church kept us out on the field for over 20 years. Even when they, they, they lost their building because they couldn't take care of it anymore because they had, had had problems in their church. They, they lost their pastor. And they were supporting us on the mission field when they didn't have a pastor themselves. So I've seen, I've seen this. I've been the, the beneficiary of this. And we tried to replicate this down in Guadalajara. As we would, would grow up the church in Guadalajara and things would start to get fuller, we'd say it's time to send people out and start a new church. And what we would do is we'd, we'd, we'd identify church planters and we would, we would enable them to, to have money to, to rent a place. And then we would say to the church planters, recruit whomever you like to go with you from our church. And guess who would go with them? Not the people who weren't doing anything. It was the most active people. And in the, we did that four times. And the last time they did it, virtually the whole worship team went out with the new church. It costs us. And people would get alarmed and say, what are we going to do without so-and-so? We're we're losing 30 people. What are we going to do without them? And I'd say, we're going to fill up their places again. And the Lord would do that every time. New people would come in. And new people would step up. And then we would send some more out. And I hope that church continues to do that. And I, I pray that by God's grace, we will be able to do that as well. Take our most effective workers and take, take our resources from our pockets and say, go and reach more people with the gospel. That's the standard that's set before us here. And then they went out. They're not, they're not called apostles here, but they all are called sent ones. That's what the word apostle means, a sent one. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is the, this is the norm. This is what we should look for. This is the ideal. There are exceptions to this. There are exceptions. And we've seen a couple exceptions in the book of Acts. So I'm not going to say this is the only way. But the norm is this. Missionaries should be sent by the Holy Spirit and sent by the church. Not lone rangers simply announcing their own call, but recognized and supported by the church. They need that and the, the church needs that as well. And here we have that, that beautiful, that beautiful combination. Who sent them? The church sent them. And the Holy Spirit sent them. So let's look for that combination. Not send those whom the Holy Spirit is not sending. And those whom the Holy Spirit is sending, get behind them and pray for them and fast and lay our hands on them and send them out to the work. Now, um, later they're called they're called apostles. Barnabas and Saul are both called apostles in chapter 14, 
verse 4 and verse 14. They're called apostles in the sense of what? Sent ones. Sent ones. Missionaries. And they went first. They went first, interestingly, they went first to a relatively accessible place. They went down to Seleucia, which was the port city that served Antioch. And then from there, they sailed to Cyprus, which was off the coast, 60 miles off the coast. And so it was close geographically. And not only that, it was Barnabas's homeland. He knew the island. And not only that, not only that, it was already partially evangelized. Because, do you remember, when the persecution broke out and people were forced out, where did they go? As far as Cyprus. And so there had already been some missionary work there. And so they went to a, a relatively accessible place, and from there they jumped off to more difficult places. And what did they do? Their strategy was this. It says, they went down to Seleucia, verse 4. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. They went first to preach the gospel in the synagogues. And this was theologically the right thing to do and missiologically an astute thing to do. The first, theologically. Paul later will write that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And you find that this is how how Saul, Paul, worked his ministry. When he would go into a new place, he would look for those who were Jewish. They already had knowledge of the Scriptures, and so he had a basis on which to preach to them because they shared the belief in the Scriptures. And so he started with the Jews because they were first in line and also because they were ones who who had access to the, the material of the Gospel in the Scriptures. And so it made sense theologically and in terms of how to conduct missionary work. And that's what they did. And then, what do they do? Um, much of the rest of Acts is this, repeated over and over and over. And they went to this city, and they went to the synagogue, and they preached there, and man, some believed, and, and others didn't, and they, they stirred up opposition, and they drove them out, or they, they rested there, or whatever it might be. And if we go on to read, and I encourage you to do that, in this first journey, they went to seven cities, um, Paul was stoned in one of them and left for dead, uh, but God spared his life. And they went to those cities, and then they went back through those cities where they had established churches, and they made sure that those churches had presbyters or elders, and then they went back to Antioch, and they reported on what God had done, and they spent a great deal of time back with their sending church. And so this is remarkable. They went to these cities, they... They established a foothold in these cities, and then they, they identified elders to carry on the work. And they would move on. Why? Because there's already a church there, and that church is to multiply and to reach its neighbors. Now, along the way, if you read the next couple chapters, along the way a couple things happen. They leave as Barnabas and Saul, and they return as Paul and Barnabas. Along the way, something happened. One thing was that Saul, instead of using his Hebrew name, started using his Roman name. And that makes sense. Why? He's a missionary in the Roman Empire. So he started using the name that would be more familiar and accessible to them. But the order changes as well. It's Barnabas. 
Barnabas who had gone and he had vouched for Saul and said, no, he really is a believer. He'd, he'd vouched for him in Jerusalem. And, and Barnabas who had, who had gone all the way to Tarsus to look for Saul and to bring him back and to, to get him established in the ministry there in, in Antioch. And now Barnabas is taking a back seat. And now it's not Barnabas and Saul, but Saul's gifts as a missionary came out, and it was clear who was the more prominent and who should be taking the lead. And now they come back as Paul and Barnabas. Now, you might think that um, that would be a difficult pill for Barnabas to swallow. But I don't think it was. Because that we're described, we have a description of, of Barnabas. And, and Barnabas is, is a, a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. And, and Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. And that's what we find Barnabas doing wherever he goes. He, he encourages the work. He encourages others. He puts other people first. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, overshadowed by the man whom he helped get started, should have been exceedingly satisfied to give to the church and to give to the world the Apostle Paul. Barnabas, what did you do with your life? And Barnabas could tell us, well, I evangelized here, I evangelized there, I taught here, I taught there. But one of my greatest gifts to the world was the Apostle Paul. And I had a part in setting him loose. And then we saw what Paul did. And we benefit from his ministry to this day. And Barnabas, we don't find much about him. He and Unfortunately, he and Paul separated over a dispute they had over this young man. That's another story. This young man named, named John, they had a dispute over him and they separated. And then Barnabas pretty much falls out of the picture. And we just have a little bit of mention of him and the rest of the New Testament, and Paul begins to take center stage as the missionary taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we wouldn't have Paul if we never had Barnabas. Now, at this point in our church, at this point in our church, going back to the beginning idea of the trellis and the vine, we have a very small trellis. I am happy to say... And we have a correspondingly small vine. But the reason I'm so happy about this situation is not because it's small or large or whatever that might be, but that it fits. It fits. And most of the work that we do in our church is vine work. We don't have a huge structure that requires a great deal of work to keep it up. And I have to say that I am thrilled with that situation, especially during a pandemic. Especially during a pandemic. And as I I, I look around, as I look at our church, I, I can't help but giving thanks to God for this wonderful church that He has situated in a marvelous way to have a, a small trellis and to be focusing on vine work. Because you know what happens if you focus on the vine and on vine work? the vine grows. If you focus on trellis work, it may grow or it may not grow. And the trellis work may snuff out the vine work. But if you focus, like I think we're doing here, on vine work principally, the vine will grow. 
And I think that we are in an excellent position, the way God has allowed us to be set up and structured, not only to survive this pandemic, but to come out of it thriving by God's grace. And if we can continue, as long as this church shall last, and as large or small as this church is, to focus on the vine, then the vine will keep growing. That's what the vine does. And as the vine grows, guess what? We will have more and more resources to invest in what? An oversized trellis? No. May God always protect us from that. To invest in whatever we need to get the vine growing in other places. The more opportunity we'll have to take our most valuable resources, whether human or financial, and send them out into the world. And this is very fitting, isn't it? Because that's what God did for us, didn't He? What did God the Father do for us to redeem us from our sins? What did He send? Whom did He send? He sent His own Son, He sent that which was most valuable to Him, His own Son. And and what did the Son give for us? That, That which was left over? That which He could spare? No, the Son gave His own life. And then, then what did the Father and the Son jointly give to the church? The Father and the Son gave the Holy Spirit. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave His life. The Father and the Son gave His Holy Spirit to us. And then the Spirit says to us, I send you out into the world to spend and to be spent so that the name of Christ might be named and believed in all the nations. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for A man like Barnabas, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, who saw something in Saul and put him ahead. And we continue to benefit from Saul's ministry, the Apostle Paul. We thank you that the gospel has reached even to us. And we thank you for the resources you've given to our church. And we thank you that our church is not overburdened by a structure that we cannot carry, but that we have been able to focus on on making disciples. And I pray, O oh God, as long as this church shall, shall exist, that we would focus on the vine work and that we would grow as we focus on investing in making disciples. And that as you bring more people and as you bring more resources to us, that we would be able to take that which is most valuable to us and those who are most gifted among us and send them by Your Spirit's call out into the mission field. Lord, would You be pleased to use Florida Coast Church to reach many from different places, right in our own neighborhoods and wherever it might be in other parts of the world. May the Gospel go out from us. Oh, Father, thank You for sending the Son. Oh, Son, thank You for giving Your life for us. Oh, Father and Son, thank You for giving us Your Spirit. And oh, Spirit, thank You for sending us to the nations with all that we need to take the gospel to them and all that they will need to believe and so be saved. And we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.